Open your Bibles this morning to the book of John, chapter 3. God's Word with you, whether in print form or on a device. Uh, We are going to look at a handful of verses today, and so I pray that you have a copy of God's Word with you. Uh, One of the things we always want to make as clear as possible is that we desire to get into God's Word today and see what God has for us. And it's God's Word that changes lives. It's God's Word that enlightens our minds to even the reality of sin and the need of a Savior. And so I pray that you have God's Word with you. I pray that if you don't have a copy of God's Word, that you would maybe stop by the Welcome Center when you leave today. We'll give you a a Bible free of charge, no credit card, no information required. You don't got to sign up for anything. There's no mailing list. Um, If you want to give us your information, we'll take that too. But um, it's free of charge. Or if you have your device, uh, you can actually download from your app store North Goodland, B.C., which is our church app. You can download that and access the Bible right there as well. So however you're getting to God's Word today, I pray that you have that with you. If you don't have any of those means with you, maybe you'll just look off maybe the person next to you. Um, And if you're sitting next to someone that's having a hard time finding some scriptures, uh, I tell people often, just get close and the people around you won't know. That was a joke. So if you get close, people around you won't know. Okay, If it's in the New Testament, just make sure there's less pages on this side than that side. Right? If it's the Old Testament, more pages on this side than that side. There you go. That's a little church trick for you. I learned that in youth group. Uh, lots of things you learn in church that way. So, But no, we are so excited to get into God's Word today. Uh, we are in the fifth week of our series, Conversations with God. And uh, as of right now, unless God changes the direction we're going, uh, it's my plan to kind of continue through for uh, another couple of weeks through this topic. And so I pray that it's been a blessing to you. If you've missed any of the messages, you can get those either on the app, on our website. You can get those in CD form. Once the series is all done, we'll have that actually in like a complete set, and you can just kind of sign up to get that, or you can check it out of the library of sermons that are at the Welcome Center. So however you can do that, we encourage you to do that. We've covered a lot of ground in the last so many weeks. We've talked about uh, what would God say about different things? What would God say about church? What would God say about uh, um, politics? What would God say about our origins? Uh, We've covered a lot of ground in the last four weeks, and so this morning uh, we want to jump in and kind of hit another topic that actually uh, someone submitted to me as a question that they had. If you guys remember early on, I said, you know, when we stand before God, many times we've heard people say, well, when I see God, I'm going to ask him this or that question. And we know the reality of Scripture that says that when we stand before God, we will not ask any questions, right? Uh, We will stand before God and we will fall before God. In, in great and other uh, humility. Uh, as a believer in Christ, I believe we will fall in exaltation of Christ. We will fall in just promoting Christ above all things. And if someone is an unbeliever, has not received Christ, then they will stand before God as God the judge, and it will not be a very pleasant time for them. And so we understand that when we stand before God, we're not going to ask him a physical question or a literal question. But if we could which is the whole point of this sermon series, is what would you want to ask God? What is a question that you've always wondered about God's Word or about practical Christian living? You want to say, God, what's the deal with this or that? And so someone sent me a message, and I thought it was really, really cool. They sent me this kind of a longer question of what they kind of have wrestled with. And I said, is this a question you'd like to ask God? Or is this a question you think we should tackle on our Conversations with God series? And they said, both. And I said, great. So we're going to do that this morning. This is one of those questions. And so if you have something that you would like to ask God, a question that's on your heart or mind, I welcome it. Go ahead and send it to me. I'd love to talk with you about it. But just a little bit of a forewarning. We may or may not get to it in the next three or four weeks. But I would love to hear what God has laid on your heart, a question for him. And so uh, John chapter 3 
And uh, Maria mentioned John 3.17, uh, which is a beautiful verse that God, uh, that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost, more or less, right? That he came to offer forgiveness, right? Not condemnation, but forgiveness. Verse 17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Beautiful verse. Uh, we read that all through the Gospels, that Jesus Christ is seeking and saving those that he desires would be saved. He wants us to come to him as Savior. But this morning we're going to talk about how do we respond to, or how do we think through, and maybe we'd ask God, God, what do we do with this reality that there will be those who will never believe? There will be those who will never believe. And that was really kind of the crux of the question that was asked of me a couple weeks ago. What do we do with those who will never believe? And you might be, what do you mean by those who will never believe? Well, look at John 3.18. So John 3.16 is probably the most popular verse in the world, right? Actually, kind of a funny story about that. Uh, many of you know you see sporting events. You see John 3.16, right, everywhere. A lot of times it'll be somewhere. Uh, Tim Tebow was really known for this. He would put 3.16 on things and, you know, talk about John 3.16 and other verses of that nature. And so John 3.16 is a very popular verse. It was one of the more popular verses in the world. Do you know what the most popular verse is today, though? Judge not lest you be judged. That's probably become more of the popular verse. Isn't that interesting how our culture, even our church culture, has shifted? It went from, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, to whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, to judge not lest you be judged. Maybe as a culture, even a church culture, we're not really wanting the, the judgments of God to be proclaimed over our life. So John 3.16, popular verse. John 3.17, again, Maria read it. We just read it again. The kind of the passion of the gospel, right? He's coming to seek and to save. He wants us to be saved. But verse 18, this is where it turns a very sobering corner. It becomes very real for us. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Now, so when you read verse 17, you read that word condemn. You see that, right? For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. But, and I've said this before, and it, I don't know how else to say this. There's some great butts in the Bible, okay? I don't know how else to put it that way. Some really good looking butts in the Bible. But anyway, um, but that the world through him might be saved. That's, a, that's an amazing hinge. We can't just stop and ignore that second half of the verse. But that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned. So how do I avoid condemnation in the eternal life? To believe on him who God sent into the world that I might not be condemned, but I might be saved. Goes on to say in verse 18, this isn't a great but. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What do we do? And if we could sit down and have a conversation with God and we can ask God, God, what do I do? How do I recognize, how do I harmonize this, these two kind of polar opposites in my mind that, that you say you want people to be saved, but we know there are those that won't believe, that won't be saved. And that causes a wrestling in us. That causes an uneasiness in us. It's an unsettling feeling. And so how would we approach that from a point of view today from Scripture, if we could talk to God and ask him, what do we do with those? How do we feel about, how do we handle that there will be those who don't believe, who never believe? I know Pastor Greg prayed, but let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom in this area this morning as we look into his word. Father, 
We humble ourselves before you, Lord. We know that we are unable to understand all that you are doing and all that you desire to do. We know that you are so much greater and farther above than we are, that your ways are not our ways. And pray, Lord, that we would have an understanding today. While we may not understand all the applications of these things, may we at least understand the the principle and the, the heart of our God. May we understand some key things from Scripture that would help us to walk in this life with a confidence in our, in our faith and a confidence that you are good, that you are good. And so, Father, we pray that you'd open our hearts and minds by the working of your Holy Spirit and to illuminate our minds and enlighten our minds to the things of God's Word. And ultimately, Lord, why do we ask these things? The real reason is that you would be glorified above all things. The church exists to glorify you, not to glorify self, but to glorify you. And so we pray that that's what happens this morning, that that as your word is given, Lord, I pray you would not allow me to get in the way of what you're doing, but I pray you'd speak freely to our hearts and minds by the working of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through for the last few weeks, like I said, if we could sit down with God and have a conversation, what would he tell us about this topic? What would he say to us in regards to how do we handle this idea that there will be those who will never be saved? Well, what does John 3.18 teach us very clearly Very clearly, we are taught there's two groups of people in the world and in eternity. There are two groups of people in the world today and that will go on into eternity. Those who are condemned and those who are not condemned. That's super simplistic, I know, but that's what 318 teaches us. There are those who will go from being condemned in this life, in this world, to the next life condemned, and there are those who are free from condemnation in this life who will continue into eternity free of condemnation. And all we can do is just say, God, thank you that there's two groups of people and not just one where we're all condemned. By the way, we all deserve condemnation. We all deserve separation from God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We're going to get to that in just a minute. And so we can praise God and say, God, thank you that there's not just one type of people in the world today and in eternity, but there's two. The reality, though, is to think about Someone being condemned for eternity. If we're being honest, that is a very unsettling, unpleasant, but a very sobering thought. It's a very sobering thought. It's also a very biblical thought. It's a very biblically sound thought, and one that should motivate us to share the powerful gospel of Christ. Man, when we sing that song, what a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. I mean, guys, I could have called it right there. Let's have an invitation. Let's go home. There is something so empowering, strengthening. I don't know how else to say it. It's, I was standing over here just praying and thinking through what, the words that we were singing. And I was thinking, God, this is so strengthening. Is the only word I could come up with that it was just, it's empowering us. To go and do what God has called us to do. When we realize there is no greater name given among men whereby you must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. There is power in the name of Jesus. I'm not talking about positive thinking power. I'm not talking about this nonsense that's been taught. I'm talking about real, eternity-changing power in the name of Jesus. You want to see someone's life changed? Don't give them your opinion. Give them Jesus. You want to see your life changed? Don't try turning over a new leaf Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior. 
Believe in the power that is in the name of Christ. And I'm telling you, there is power in that. And when we as a body of Christ, when we gather together to sing that name that is above every other name, man, that is empowering. As a community of believers to gather and praise him. Don't waste it. Don't neglect what God wants to do when we gather as the body of Christ. Allow yourself to be engaged in what God is doing. But this reality causes us to have some serious questions that come to our minds. And so I just want to pose to you a couple questions that maybe somebody might think or ask as they're wrestling with this reality that there are those who are not condemned because of Jesus, but that there will be those who will be condemned. That they are already condemned if they haven't received Christ, is what John 3.18 says. Some of the questions that might come to mind when we think about this could be, why would God create someone that he knows will never believe and end up in hell? This is a question. I'm just being really real this morning. This is a question that some of you maybe have asked this question of your own mind and said, why even create someone that you know God will never be saved, never believe, and end up in hell? Why even create someone? Why even allow them to be born if they're only going to do evil for evil? Why would God even do that? Another question somebody might ask, is God still loving if he makes the choice to send someone to hell for their sin? These are questions people will ask. I'm telling you guys, as a pastor, these are some questions that I get from people. Christians that love God, love Jesus Christ, but just really are like, man, I've prayed about this thing. I just don't know. I just, I'm really struggling with these things. And so another question you might receive is, knowing all of that, and still knowing that God is good, and still knowing that God is sovereign, and still knowing that God is merciful and gracious, how do I pray in that reality? How do I pray in that realm? Believing that God is good, but also knowing that people will be condemned for eternity. How do I, how do I harmonize those things together? And see, what happens in church a lot is we all wrestle with questions like that as we're walking our Christian journey. We've all had questions that, that we scratch our heads and we're like, I know, I think I know what God's word says about this, but, but the answer I'm coming to isn't still a settling one. It's still causing me some uneasiness. I'll be transparent enough to say as a pastor who went to Bible college and received a degree, I wrestle with questions in my Christian walk. Anyone else wrestle with questions in your Christian walk? Anyone got it all figured out? Know all the answers? Man, we all wrestle. You know what? Unfortunately, you know what happens in church? We're not encouraged to ask those kind of questions. We're not encouraged to dig into God's word and go, but I don't, I don't see this meshing together. I pray that we would ask questions like that, not in a disrespectful, irreverent way of God, but go to him and say, God, I believe your word is true. Give me wisdom in this. This is the question I just can't get around. Now, the other reality is, God may allow us to find the answer in his word or through encouragement of the church or, or individuals that we talk to. And we may not like the answer, but that doesn't mean the answer is not the right answer. So sometimes it's not the answer isn't the problem. It's our responding to the answer, our reaction to what God's answer may be. And so while we obviously do not have all the answers in application to these questions, I do believe scripture can give us some enlightenment in this area of what do we do with, how do we handle this reality when there are those who will never believe? So the first thing we have to understand, this is number one. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. It's a very profound statement. 
It's going it's to blow your socks off. You ready? God's always perfect. So we need to write that down. Some of us really need to write that down. God's always perfect. God is perfect in all that he does. God does not err. God is never wrong. God never makes a mistake. Everything God does is perfect because he is God. And I know we say we believe that, but I don't know about my own life. Sometimes I don't live like I believe that. Sometimes I don't pray like I believe that. You ever pray a prayer trying to correct God on something, but not really trying to correct God on something? Like a real spiritual way of trying to get God to understand that you know better than he does, but you're really not saying that because that would be not very spiritual to say that. But you know those kind of prayers we pray? God is perfect in all that he does. Everything God does is right. See, this is the foundation. We have to start with this. And if we don't believe this, then we're really going to struggle with this book. We're really going to struggle with the word of God. We're really going to struggle with who God is. Everything God does is perfect. Everything God does is right. We may and do struggle with the truths of Scripture, but ultimately, I don't get to judge God's fairness. We have to start there. I can't read John 3.18 and go, God, that's not fair. I mean, I can, but I don't have the right to do that. I don't get to tell God what's fair and not fair. Now, I'm not saying we don't vent to God when we're battling with this. We vent, and we can tell God, God, I don't get how this is fair. I don't understand. And I believe God receives that. But we better be very quick to listen to God's response and say, so God, because I know you're always right and always perfect and always good in all that you do, and I don't understand how this is fair, would you change my thinking? Would you help me to see this differently? God is perfect in all of his attributes. We are not. We are not perfect in all of our attributes. You see, due to sin, we do not think as we should, naturally speaking. I have limited knowledge, limited idea of holiness. In reality, when I question God's fairness as unfair, I am merely underestimating the damaging and destructive power of sin. When I dare ask God, God, that's not fair. You can't do that because of this one sin here or this one sin there. That sin wasn't that big of a deal. All I'm really doing is telling God, God, I ultimately don't understand the real power of sin and the destructive nature that it causes in our lives and in our world. Romans chapter 9. Let's go over to Romans 9. I mentioned we're going to look at a lot of verses this morning, and so uh, I hope you uh, will get into God's Word with me. But I'll, let me say this as well. Um, if you miss a verse, if you miss a passage, um, I'm going to give you a lot of verses in just a little bit here that we're not going to turn to per se. Let me just say again, if anybody wants a copy of these notes, they're yours. You can just email me or Facebook me or whatever. I'll send you a copy. The whole sermon, you can have it. It has all the verses in it that we're referencing this morning, so you'll be able to have that for your own notes and study. But Romans chapter 9 and verse 18. So again, if we were sitting here and God was right there and I said, God, I don't think you're fair sometimes. You might say, would you really say that to God if he was sitting right there? No. I wouldn't because I'd be terrified to say that to God directly. But we say it to God all the time, right? And how we respond to him, how we pray. Romans 9, 18. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will be hardened, or and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say that unto me, why does he yet find fault? 
for who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that thou repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory? That's a powerful passage. Verse 24. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, this is an interesting passage, Romans 9. We did a study on Romans. I should say we're doing a study on Romans on Sunday night. If you've missed it, um, again, we have outlines for Romans 9. We talked through what this all means in great detail for time's sake. I can't dive into all of it, but you can find it on our website for Romans chapter 9. The idea here basically is that the clay, which is us, needs to understand that God is the potter. He is the one that formed us. And when God acts or does or allows things that we don't understand, we have to be very careful that we don't assume the position of potter as though we are the ones in charge, as though we are the ones in control. In this phrase here, you might think something different about it, but this phrase here, when it says in uh, verse 22, the idea of vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, the idea, and it's referring to Pharaoh, the idea there is that we actually fit ourselves for destruction for the choices and the things that we allow to happen in our lives, the choices we make. So some people look at this and go, oh, well, Pharaoh didn't have a choice. When you go back and you study Genesis, you'll find out Pharaoh made some choices of his own and God allowed those choices to happen. And then God, in agreement with those choices, said, okay, you want to harden your heart to me? Then your heart is hard. See, there is this picture unfolding of, and we're going to get into it in a little bit, of God's sovereignty and our free will. And Scripture lays both before us. We can't deny one in the embracing of another. They both exist in Scripture. And we have to embrace both of them because they are in Scripture. And so Romans 9, the key here is we often will say to God, why are you doing this? Why did you show mercy to that one and not to that one? And God's answer is, I will show mercy to whom I will. And you might say, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. Who does he show his mercy to? We already read that in John 3.18. Who are the ones who are not condemned? Those who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Romans 9, we read that and we go, well, who's the ones that receive mercy? Thank you for asking that question. It's a great question. God tells us. He sent his son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We can't take these verses, plop them out of their context, and make them mean something different. We have to take the whole weight of Scripture and say, man, God says that those in Christ will be saved, and that is whom he will show mercy to. And when, when somebody comes to God a different way, through a different religion or a different belief system that is not ordained by God as truth, and God rejects that person, or as the Bible says, God says, I never knew you, I cannot say to God, that is unfair, God. That is unmerciful. Because God's response will be, I am God. And I have determined how I will show mercy. And I am showing mercy to those in Christ. And so we have to understand here, there's a dynamic here we have to get. That God is perfect. And all that God does is good. I cannot question God's fairness. So, we talked about it a little bit, Romans 9. Look at Romans 10. 
Romans 10, just a couple of verses over, verses 9 through 13. We see here that God makes a decision who he'll show mercy to. And again, just a reminder, God gives us free will. God grants us free will. Romans 10, verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. See how we have to take all of this as one continuous revelation? Verse 10. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Romans 9, we see this kind of depiction of God's sovereignty. In Romans 10, we see a depiction of man's free will, both working together. You might say, but how? Listen, I don't know all the answers to that question, but I will tell you this. Scripture shows us they work together in agreement. I don't need to know how it all works. I need to know and understand that they're both represented in Scripture. I believe God is sovereign, but I also believe we have free will given to us by God to make a choice. And the Bible's pretty clear on that reality, that you make a choice. And by the way, your background, your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your financial status has nothing to do with it. For there is no difference, the Bible says, between the Jew and the Greek. That's a way of saying between this group of people and that group of people. The Greeks would also be called Gentiles, non-Jews. So between the Jews and the Gentiles, there's no difference because in Christ we are one. Did you guys see that line that we sang, that the veil has been torn? That means that access to God is granted to all who would come through Christ. I don't need to go through a specific Jewish tradition, religion, festival, ceremony to get to God anymore. I don't have to wait for the priest to go before me, and he is the one who talks to God for me. I have access to the very holy of holies because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, was buried, and rose again. See, sometimes we think this. We think, well, I have to hear from God through the pastor. i got to hear through God or from God through the priest. i got to pray to God through the priest. That's something even some churches today teach. Here's the beauty of it. Through Jesus Christ, you have direct access. Now, you can ask others to pray for you. I encourage that. Right? We should be asking others to pray for us. Paul says, would you pray for me that I would say what I'm supposed to say when I have opportunity to say it? Which is a great prayer for all of us. Amen? To say what I'm supposed to say when I'm supposed to say it. Some of us don't pray that. We say stuff we're never supposed to say in the really wrong way we're supposed to say it. But Paul says, would you pray for me? You can have people pray for you. There's nothing wrong with that. But you don't need someone to talk to God for you. You have Jesus Christ if you received him as your Savior, as your mediator, your go-between. And he will pray for you. He will give you access to the Father. When you say, Heavenly Father, and bow in prayer, or Heavenly Father with your eyes wide open, you are ushered into the very presence of God's throne room. And he hears you. Now how crazy is that? I've been reading through the book of Daniel for the last few weeks and just the time and time again where Daniel is reminded that it's his humility before God that God hears and responds to Daniel's prayer. Now, God hears us in Christ and he responds in his holy will. We don't always understand the response, but I'm so thankful he always hears and he always responds and he responds in the best way possible every single time. And God is so good to us. 
See, the reality is that, yes, God is sovereign, but the other side of that is, yes, we have free will. We have a choice to make. God knew Adam and Eve would sin and fall, but he did not make them sin and make them fall. He was aware of what would take place, and he allowed them to make a decision, and they chose sin. They chose to believe the word of the serpent over the word of God. They replaced the word of truth with the word of a lie, and the result was sin and entered humanity. Romans chapter 5, if you don't believe that, that there's such a thing as original sin, Romans chapter 5 makes it very clear that when one man sinned, sin entered into humanity and passed upon all men. But praise God, Romans 5 says that when Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross and he allowed himself to be buried and rise again, that by that one man's obedience, many could be made righteous. So we could be made righteous through Christ. See, Adam and Eve sinned. God knew they would sin, but God did not make them sin. He merely allowed them to make a choice. Because they sinned of their own free will choosing, this is how God was able to hold them accountable for their sin. It's like when I tell my sons or when they were real little, I would tell my boys not to do something. Any parents do this? Now don't do that. Why do we tell our kids not to do things that might hurt them? Because we don't want them to get hurt. Don't play by the road. Why? Because you may slip, fall, boom, car comes by. Look both ways before you cross the street because you want to see if a car is coming. Don't play with the stove because you might get burned. Right? Don't run with something in your mouth like a popsicle or something, or I mean a sucker, because you could fall and what would happen? You'd jab yourself in the throat. Don't put things in your ear that aren't supposed to go in your ear because they might get stuck. Don't put things up your nose that might get stuck because they not, may not come out real easy. Isn't it amazing the things you have to tell kids? You ever think back and go, why did I have to, I had to be told that. I had to be told, don't put Cocoa Puffs up your nose. Why is, who goes Cocoa Puff? I wonder what that smells like. I bet if I get it up my nose, it'll smell really good, right? By the way, if you get a cocoa puff, cocoa puff up your kid's nose, all the young parents in here, we got some soon-to-be moms and all that. You guys want a piece of advice? How do you get a cocoa puff out of a kid's nose? Crunch and blow, okay? <laughs> Crunch, blow, every time. Any Fruit Loops, Cocoa Puffs, Captain Crunch, whatever cereal goes up there, Crunch, blow, every time, okay? That's free. That was just not even part of the sermon. But I tell my kids this. Now listen, here's the thing. As parents, especially with our second children or whatever, our second child, what, what do we know most likely will happen? If you tell a child, don't do this, what might the child be tempted to do? Exactly what you said not to do. Listen, now don't swing on that that way. You might hurt yourself. Ten minutes later, crying, pain, anguish, holding of the head. What happened? Well, I swung on that and I fell and hit myself. You know what moms say? Moms go, aw, come here. Give him a hug. Are you okay? Let's go get a Band-Aid. What do dads say? I told you not to do that, and that's why you hurt yourself. Suck it up, right? That's what most parents, dads will say. Now, if I tell my kid, don't play with fire, you might get burned. I'm not, and I, I have a good intention, they're probably going to do it. I'm not going to make them do that to teach them a lesson. But when they come back to me, I'm not surprised. I'm not shocked, because I understand they're children. They haven't learned. They don't understand. So in, in the idea of spirituality, as best I can think of it this way, is when God warns us in Scripture, sin not. Don't sin. Don't give in to sin. It's going to be really, really bad if you give in to sin. Don't choose sin. Sin not. 
Look, here's all the bad things that come out of sin. If you choose to sin, this is what's going to happen. God in his sovereignty knows if we are going to sin, and most likely we will. And when I go to God and say, God, I'm so sorry I sinned, and your word said not to, I know it said not to, and I knew before I did it I shouldn't do it. By the way, just going to be honest with you, in my Christian life I've sinned and knew it was sin before I did it. Anyone else? Made a sin choice, but you knew before you made the sin choice it was a sin? That could be a word of bitterness, by the way. It can be any number of sins. And God says to me, man, there's grace, there's forgiveness, and the repentance, but you know what else there is? There's consequence. There's consequence. See, God is just in bringing consequence and allowing it to happen because I made the choice to sin. People will say, well, it's not fair that I go to hell for Adam's sin. You don't go to hell for Adam's sin if you don't know Christ. You go to hell as a condemnation of your sin, sin choices you made. And so we need to be understanding of this. There is God's sovereignty and God's, or in our free will. God constantly calls the people in both Old and New Testaments to live a holy life submitted to him. The reality is, and the beautiful reality is, he gives us all we need, all we need to respond by faith. And yet so many will willfully refuse his goodness and mercy. And so I want to give you two examples of these two ends of a spectrum. So Romans, I'm sorry, go over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, because this is really the problem we have. This is that harmonizing I was talking about. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This whole passage, and I talked about the days of the week of creation being literal days, uh, in this passage is where people will get the idea that, um, that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Uh, this is where context matters. We've said that a lot over the last few weeks. Um, people were questioning the Lord's return. Man, I've been hearing for a long time, God's coming again. The Lord's coming again. He ain't come yet. Peter's response is, listen, don't put God on your timetable in regards to his second coming. He's, he's working at a different timetable. He's doing what he needs to do and when he needs to do it. And the whole point of this is God hasn't returned yet. Christ hasn't returned yet and issued in the second coming. And the reason he hasn't is because he's long-suffering. He's patient and he's giving us time for repentance. Why? So that many would not perish but have everlasting life. We read that. We read the heart of God, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the desire of God. Go over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I know we're going back and forth here, but Romans chapter 3 in verse 9. Romans 3 in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No. Romans 3, 9. In no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. 
So how do we harmonize that? How do we harmonize the reality that, that there is not a single human being on planet Earth that has ever done good, meaning holiness, before God? We've all fallen away. We've all sinned. We're all under sin. And that sin carries a consequence and a condemnation. But then Second Peter says, I really wish that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. So this is one of the struggles we have in Christianity. I want to believe, Second Peter 3, 9, that God really wants that. But I have to harmonize that with Romans chapter 3. This reality that there will be those who will never believe that they are sinners, they have sinned, and God will judge them as sinners. I think we wrestle with this a lot. And we say, what happens is we either ignore one or the other. 2 Peter 3, 9 is true. Therefore, all people go to heaven when they die. No one goes to hell. Or we overemphasize hell and condemnation and we never speak of the grace and the beauty of the gospel that sets us free from sin. How do we harmonize this? How do we handle this? Well, we need to ask a very important question. Now, my time's running short, so I'm going to go through this. And I... I Appreciate your faithfulness and your attentiveness, but I want to give you guys these verses because I truly believe there's a question. If we ask this question and we understand the answer to this question, I think it will help us in this reality. We have to go beyond the surface and ask not what God is doing, but why is God doing it? Not just what God is doing, but why is God doing it? Here's the question. What is God all about? You don't need to answer out loud, but what is God all about? I mean, what really is, is God's ultimate purpose in all things? The reality is that God is all about his glory. God is all about his glory. I'm going to read one more verse and then give you a lot of verses here that I pray will encourage you in that way. John 17. John 17 and verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lift up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hours come glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. This is the prayer, uh, the Lord's prayer, the true Lord's prayer. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying before he goes to the cross. And he begins this prayer by saying a very important key word here. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. You see, ultimately, God's greatest purpose is his own glory. And I think if we can understand that, it will help us to be able to be settled with this reality that there will be those who will never believe. Because ultimately, if God is glorified, then we rejoice in that. So I want to take us through a journey in God's Word to show us how passionate God is about His glory above all else. And again, I can give you these verses later. Please don't try to write them down. Okay? Uh, if you want to, you can try. I'm just telling you it's going to be tough. Okay? So if you want the notes, you're free to have them. Isaiah 43, we find out that God created us for his glory. But why did God form you? Why did God create you? Ultimately, it's for his glory. We think we are a wonderful creation, and we are. But if we're not careful, we exchange God's glory on display in us as though it's all about us. God created us for his glory. Isaiah 49, God called Israel for his glory glory. Psalm 106, God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. God raised up Pharaoh, as we've already referenced, for his glory, Romans chapter 9. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name, Ezekiel chapter 20. 
And what's crazy about this is God is very clear. It had nothing to do with the Israelites. How does God describe the Israelites? Yes, they were his chosen people, sure. But he also says you're a stiff-necked, rebellious generation. You're a hardened people. But yet, why did he spare them in the wilderness? For the glory of his name above all else. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gave Israel victory in the land of Canaan for the glory of his name. Ezekiel chapter 36, God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. Jesus sought the glory of the Father in all that he did. John chapter 7 verse 18. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, 1 Peter 2 12. Do all the good works that we do for the glory of his name. Why do you do good works? So that people will see it and glorify God. John chapter 14, Jesus answers prayers so that God may be glorified. Jesus says, ask anything you will in my name and I will do it. Man, that's really, really cool. That's awesome. That sounds good. And I can get what I want from God like he's a genie or a vending machine. No, that's not what Jesus meant. He said, if I am glorified, if God is glorified, if God is glorified in the answer of this prayer, then I will answer that prayer. John chapter 12 and chapter 17, Jesus endures his final hours of suffering for the glory of the Father. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness. What does that talk about? How is it the Old Testament saints were forgiven of their sin? How is it that David, after committing adultery and murder to cover up his adultery, could be called a man after God's own heart? Could be told by the prophet his sins were forgiven? Because God, knowing that Jesus Christ would die on the cross for the sins of those who have sinned, those that would believe on him and believe in God. His salvation experience, that salvation experience, the death of Christ, goes forward to believers today and backward and covers the Old Testament saints. That's how David was considered righteous. John chapter 16, verse 14. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. To glorify the Son of God. It's the reason the Holy Spirit was given to us. 1 Corinthians 10.31. God instructs us to do all for the glory of God. Have you ever thought about that? To eat and to drink and to do all to the glory of God? To drive our car for the glory of God? To, to, to live in a way that in our words and our actions, both in print, on social media, and in person, would glorify God? And how we communicate with other people, how we serve one another, how we inconvenience ourselves so that somebody else might be blessed, all for the glory of God. This is hard stuff, but we're called to do it. We're commanded, in fact, to do it. God instructs us to do all for the glory of God. First Peter 4, we are to serve in a way that glorifies him. The ministry you do, whether it's in the church or out of the church, is to glorify him, not to promote self. It's not about you getting glory or you getting attention or you doing this or that. It's about God's glory. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Jesus is coming again for the glory of God. Amen? Jesus will return to glorify the Father. John 17, Jesus' ultimate aim is for us to see and enjoy his glory. Habakkuk chapter 2, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Let me ask you a question. How much water covers the seas? You ever been in the water or in an ocean or in a sea? It's pretty wet. Lots of water. 
That's the whole point. He's saying the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Romans 11, everything that happens will redound, redound rather to the glory of God. Everything that happens will redound to the glory of God. That is so hard for us to get. Everything that happens. Man, all things work together for the good of those who what? Who are the called. And that good is not defined by you and me. It's defined by God. And God defines good as making us more like Jesus Christ, which will bring glory to him. Romans, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapters 21 and 23. In the new Jerusalem, the glory of God replaces the sun. The glory of God replaces the sun. It is the story of the Bible from cover to cover. It's the glory of God. From Genesis to Revelation, it's not about you. It's not about me. The story is not about us. The Bible is the story of God's redemptive work among mankind for his glory. An example of how seeing this clearly changes how we approach the Bible is seen in how we tell the story of David and Goliath and how that story has been used to implement you and I into the story, which makes really good worship songs and really good preaching, but it's not true. Just going to give you a little bit of newsflash. The story of David and Goliath is not about you facing your trials and struggles and overcoming them. See, the story of David and Goliath, who were, it was a real story, by the way. It really happened. But if you want to put some different people in the story and symbolize it for future events, you could easily do it this way. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus, according to Hebrews, he's the greater prophet, priest, and king. That's the whole point of Hebrews. Jesus is the greater this. He's the greater David. He is the one that overcomes. Goliath represents sin and death. And God conquered through Jesus Christ sin and death. Amen? See, that's who you put in the story. But then that leads us to think, well, who am I in this story? I got to be in the story. Don't worry, you're in the story. You're the terrified Israelites shaking in the corner who needs a Savior. That's who you are. See, I, I get so frustrated when people, Christians, will take Bible passages and reduce them to about us, when they really, in their story, exemplify and glorify God. Why do we got to reduce it down and make it trivial about us when we are glorified, when Christ is glorified, because when we glory in him, we are blessed and promoted. And we need to understand the story of God's word is about his glory. So we are saved, ultimately, to make much of him. One more passage. I know we're out of time. We're so out of time, but I want to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Good thing nobody's hungry, right? Ephesians chapter 1. I got to end in this passage because I think it's key to understand this reality. How do we harmonize this? Remember our questions? Is God good if people are cast into hell for their sin? The answer is yes. Is God glorified in that? The answer is yes. Is it fair? Yes, because God deemed it fair. Ephesians chapter 1, listen to this. We're going to read the first six verses together. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, he's writing to believers, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Why am I blessed in heavenly places? Why am I considered blessed of God? Not because of me. 
not because of me. I've heard people say, you know, there's some people I know that when I ask them how they're doing, they'll always say the same thing pretty much. They'll say blessed and highly favored. They are because they're in Christ, but they, they cut it short. And if you're not careful, you think they're meaning they're just blessed and highly favored because of who they are. Man, Paul's pretty clear. I am only blessed because I'm in Christ by his grace. Verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that he should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Do you know why you were saved? we got to get this church. Do you know why you were saved? You were saved to glorify his grace. You were saved to make much of him. You were saved to glorify him, to make him known. Now, this doesn't mean that God's not interested in you. Obviously, he's interested in you. He loves you. He died for you. You're so valuable to him. But when we exchange this reality and we think it's about us and not him, we think it's about us and we take this book and we make it about us and we make all our prayers about us. No, it's about him. And praise God that he does bless us and he does care for us and he does lift us up and he does strengthen us and it's all good. But we got to remember it's for his glory. So how do we harmonize there will be those, that there will be those who will never believe, actually die in their sin, facing eternal judgment in a place called hell. We harmonize it in this way. We trust and believe in God's word that he is glorified, both in those who receive Christ to glorify his grace and goodness and those who die in their sin to glorify his holiness and his righteousness. That I will ultimately find peace not in getting what I think should happen and not in other people getting what I think they should get, but in that God is glorified and that is where I find my rest. Obviously, it's not a pleasant thought that there will be those that will never believe and I truly believe that it breaks the Father's heart. However, I believe the more we realize that reality, the more it will drive us and push us and motivate us to share the gospel with others. We need to be passionate in sharing our faith so that others hear the good news and know they have a choice to receive Christ, to find the forgiveness of sins and be saved for all eternity. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are. As we close our service in a time of invitation, I want to ask that you would allow God to speak to you and encourage your heart in these things. As you bow your heads right there where you are, I just want to ask a simple question. No one looking around. As the praise band comes to the stage, I just want to ask you right there where you are in your seats, do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you received Christ personally for yourself? Not asking if you've been baptized, if you've gone to church, if you read the Bible through. I'm asking, do you know Christ personally? Have you received him for yourself? Have you confessed your sins? Believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? that he died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again, and that by believing and trusting in him, asking him to forgive you of your sins, believing that he did all that he did for you, receiving the grace that God offers to you that you can be saved, apart from any work that you do on your own, apart from any religious activity, but solely because of Christ's gift to you. If you've never done that, maybe you would do that this morning. Maybe you would ask God, Lord God, remind me, convince me, and show me my sin that I would confess it, but that I would also receive your grace. 
I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you were buried and rose again. And I believe that one day I will see you again. I believe that you can save me because you are good. And I believe you will save me because your word says that if I call out to you, you will forgive me of my sins. With your heads bowed and right there where you are, if you've never made that decision to trust Christ, maybe you'd make that decision this morning. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ and you've wrestled with these questions, maybe you've even thought less of God because of the things that you believe God is allowed to happen. Maybe you, you struggle with this idea that God would actually send someone to hell for their sin. Maybe you think that doesn't make God loving. I pray that you would maybe come and bend the knee and say, God, would you show me and encourage me with the truth of your word that I would know that your glory, that your glory is what I should desire above all things. Help me to know that while I don't like the thought, it's unpleasant, it's unsettling, I can have a peace in knowing that if you are glorified, then I am joyful. I don't joy that others may suffer the consequences of their sin for eternity. I don't joy in that. I joy in the reality that they can be saved. That if they would just trust in you, they can be forgiven of their sin. I realize that it's my calling and our calling as a church to share the message of Christ with others, that they would be set free. And so, Father, in all these things, I know there's so many different applications we can make in this talk. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom in all those things, that you would be glorified again above all things. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as the praise band leads us in a song of praise? Would you respond how God is leading? Maybe you know someone that doesn't know Christ, and you want to come and pray for them. You want to come and pray for boldness to speak the gospel into their lives. Maybe you yourself want to come and receive Christ, or maybe you want to come and pray for wisdom as God is teaching you in all these things. Whatever God is doing, would you respond as we sing and we spend time with him?